And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and I'm here with my buddy. I almost said doctor. You are not a doctor. I almost here. <laughs> I am here with my buddy Scott. I could Gordon. be a doctor if I wanted to. <laughs> You know, it, it's it's like we're on a, on a seesaw, but I'm glued to my side. And every once in a while, you get off, and Doctor Bill gets on, and then every once in a while, he, he gets off, and you get on, and that's who I'm riding around with. So it's 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 funny because the episodes have been coming out staggered, so it sounds as if things are spread out. But it's been a little while since you and I recorded. Yeah, it has. I don't like it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Straighten this shit out. You know, to, for the for the listeners, just just to to pull the curtain back a little bit, I give Scott a lot of leeway because of his job, and I still continue to give him a lot of leeway because of his job. I also give him a lot of leeway because of, you know, I know what it's like. You're married. You want to spend time with your wife and whatever. But I'm going to back this off a little because the other day I was on the phone with Scott and his wife, and that came up, and she was like, "No, please take him." <laughs> <laughs> Do I lie? <laughs> No, you don't. No, that's always going to be her answer, though. But yeah, especially after spending what it's been like two years now <laughs> in the house, you know. Yeah. In each other's company, so yeah, she's she's more than ready to pawn me off on anybody else that'll that'll take me for a while. <laughs> so to be totally honest, the biggest issue is really when we can line up our two schedules together. Uh, otherwise, as long as we can, we'll keep pumping stuff out, you know. But. For today, absolutely. For today, we have a kind of a strange interview episode, uh, and I'll give a little bit of background for it. Uh, when the most recent Venom movie came out, uh, David Michelini posted on his on on his Facebook uh, page, and I'm going to read his posting. Hopefully, this won't take me too long. Okay, folks, this is going to be my last post on the Who Created Venom issue. Promise. Bleeding Cool has published a news article about the situation. In it, they reprinted a letter I sent to Wizard Magazine in 1993, complete with punctuation errors that weren't in my original. After I had seen them to be, as far as my experience went, the first publication to print the term co-creator when linking me to the Venom character. They also reprinted Eric Larson's response, which he began by calling me a clown, angrily accusing me of trying to take sole credit for Venom when Todd McFarlane was the one who really made Venom popular and his visual in, with his visual interpretation, and on rereading those two letters, I realized that the cause of this seemingly endless conflict was exactly what I had thought it to be in the first place, terminology. 
In the 1980s, Marvel Comics devised their own definition of creator, stating that the first person to write a new character and the first person to draw a new character were the, and he put in quotations, creators. This wasn't anyone's verdict of right or wrong, but a corporate decision made in order to facilitate the royalty payment program they were instituting. That qualifier rapidly became the commonly accepted definition to both comic book professionals and fans. But long before I even became a professional writer, my understanding of the word create was that it applied to the first person who thought of or introduced or wrote something new. And here I'm referring to Venom's character, not the costume, powers, or anything else. And to me, character is defined as personality, motivation, and history. So yes, I did say there was only one person who actually created Venom, and that was me. Which, by the definition I held for some 20 years of writing comics, was true. However, through the wisdom of hindsight, I can see where this might have confused readers who didn't know what I was actually referring to. Therefore, I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to Todd McFarlane if he understandably misinterpreted my intentions. I've been choosing the word originator rather than creator in hopes of simplifying things, but that hasn't seemed to do much good. I still believe and will always believe that I was the one who tipped the slinky down the staircase. For those of you too young to get that reference, that means I'm the one who started things. But the evolution of the Venom character, both visually and narratively, from the 1980s to where it is now, has obviously been a process fueled by the contributions of many, many people. I hope this might clear up a few things. Probably not, but hey, at least I gave it a shot. Now, that stuck a, a you know, stuck with me a little bit because Scott and I and Bill uh, have had this conversation many times. How do you how do you define oh, yeah. uh, creator? And there's so many different things that enter into it, and we've you know we've given our own opinions on it and all. But you know, I, I took that and I print I uh, actually uh, shared it on our Facebook page. And I reached out to David Michelini and I asked him, you know, if he'd be interested in maybe coming on the show and talking about this, because it is such a, a you know, a hot point discussion that we've had on so many t- occasions already. Uh, he respectfully declined to come on the show, but he graciously offered to respond to any written questions I would provide for him. So I scrambled and wrote up some questions as quickly as I could. Uh, Scott and I put our heads together. I showed him the questions that I was sending. Uh, you know, we, we tweaked them a little bit and then we sent them out and he sent out his responses. So what I want to do now is I want to read a little biography as taken from Wikipedia for David Michelini. And then I want to read the questions. Scott's going to take, play the role of David Michelini and give us the answers. And then we're going to take a chance to, you know, to discuss them. The problem I have with this is I don't believe I'm the best interviewer around. I don't believe I'm even in the top million. Uh, you know, I presented the questions that would interest me. And realistically, to make this complete, I would have needed to be able to listen to his answers and then possibly build on some of the answers with additional questions to kind of clarify my understanding. And even then, again, like I said, I don't think I'm a great interviewer, so I'm not sure I would have done a complete job with it, but I think I would have done a little bit more. And I guess we'll get into that as we discuss the actual questions. So by way of biography, David Michelini is an American comic book writer best known for scripting Marvel's The Amazing Spider-Man and Iron Man and the DC Comics feature Superman in Action Comics. Among the characters he created or co-created are Venom, Carnage, Scott Lang slash Ant-Man, and War Machine. 
Michelini grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and worked as a commercial film production comp- worked at a f- commercial film production company before moving to New York to take part in an appre- apprenticeship program started by DC Comics. Some of Michelini's earliest works appeared in DC Comics' House of Secrets and a run on Swamp Thing. Michelini and artist Ernie Chan created Claw the Unconquered in 1975. Michelini did a run on Aquaman and Adventure Comics, which led to the revival of the Sea King's own title in 1977. In the Aquaman story in Adventure Comics 452, Black Manta killed Aquaman's son, Arthur Curry Jr., by suffocation. The infant's death has affected the character ever since. While writing the Karate Kid series, Michelini used the name Barry Jameson as a pseudonym. With artist Ed Davis, he created Gravedigger in Men of War No. 1. The Star Hunters were created by Michelini and editor Joe Orlando and artist Don Newton. Debuted in DC Superstars No. 16 and featured their own short-lived series. The original storyline for Madame Xanadu in Doorway to Nightmare No. 1 was developed by Michelini and Val Mayrick. Among Dick Michelini's best-known works are his two runs on Iron Man with co-plotter slash inker Bob Layton. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, which introduced the character's series problem with alcoholism and his specialized power armor variants. He introduced two of Stark's closest comrades, Bethany Cave and Jim Rhodes, as well as new enmities with Justin Hammer and Dr. Doom. His most noted cliffhanger was when Tony Stark was thrown out of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s helicarrier and he had to don his armor completely to use its flight function before he hit the ground. After leaving the title in 1981, Michelini reunited with Layton on the book late in 1986, and along with penciler M.D. Bright, closed out preceding writer Dennis O'Neill's Advanced Idea Mechanics arc and launched The Armor Wars. During this time, he and Layton introduced The Ghost. Michelini left Iron Man after issue 250, closing his second collaboration with Layton with a sequel to their Iron Man Doctor Doom time travel episode, from numbers 159 and 149 and 150. Michelini was one of the writers on The Avengers from 1978 to 1982 and worked with artists John Byrne and George Perez. During this time, he and Byrne created Scott Lang in The Avengers 181. He created The Taskmaster with Perez in Avengers 195. From 1987 to 1994, Michelini wrote The Amazing Spider-Man, which featured the art of Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, and Mark Bagley, while introducing supervillains Vent the supervillains Venom in issue 298 and Carnage in 361. Michelini had planned to introduce Venom earlier and included a teaser scene in Web of Spider-Man 18 in which Peter Parker is pushed by an off-screen Venom into the path of an oncoming train, the symbiote being unsusceptible to Spider-Man's spider-sense that would have normally warned him of the attack. This was the first of what was to be several clues leading to the reveal of Venom. Michelini left Web of Spider-Man shortly after and was not able to continue the introduction of Venom until his time writing The Amazing Spider-Man. Behind Stan Lee, Michelini had the second longest run on The Amazing Spider-Man as a writer. He also wrote the limited series Venom Lethal Protector in 1993, where Venom was the main character and acted as an anti-hero instead of villain for the first time. In the early 1990s, David Michelini worked at Valiant Comics on the titles Rye, Hardcore, Torak Dinosaur Hunter, and Magnus Robot Fighter. He began working for DC Comics again with the launch of Justice League Task Force in 1993 with artist Sal Valuto. In 1994, Michelini became the writer of Action Comics, which he stayed on for three years. 
As one of the five principal Superman writers at the time, he co-wrote Superman The Wedding Album in 1996. David Michelini and artist Paul Ryan are the only comic book creators to have contributed to the wedding issues of both Spider-Man, ma marrying Mary Jane Watson in The Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21, and Superman marrying Lois Lane in Superman The Wedding Album. He also wrote issues of Superman Adventures and Steel, as well as the miniseries Legion, Science Police, Superman's Nemesis Lex Luthor, and Superman vs. Predator. His last credited work for DC Comics in 2000. The same year he joined forces with Bob Layton again for a miniseries Iron Man Bad Blood for Marvel Comics. After a hiatus, from, after a hiatus Michelini returned to comics by teaming up with Bob Layton and Dick Giordano to form Future Comics, where he wrote the series Freemind, Metallics, and Death Mask. The company closed in 2004. In 2007, Michelini wrote Kolchak Tales, The Frankenstein Agenda 1 through 3, for Moonstone Books. Also for Moonstone, he wrote several prose short stories, which appeared in the anthologies The Phantom Chronicles, Werewolves, Dead Moon Rising, and The Avenger Justice Files, Inc. In 2008, he and Leighton collaborated again on a four-issue Iron Man Legacy of Doom miniseries, and in 2009 on the one-shot Iron Man The End for Marvel Comics. It was followed up by a one-shot What If, Iron Man Demon in the Armor in 2011, and a four-issue follow-up to Armor Wars storyline published as Iron Man 258.1 through 258.4. In 2013, he returned to his Venom creation with stories for Venom number 150, Venom Annual number 1, and Ven Venom Volume 4 number 25, all penciled by Ron Lim, who had also worked on Venom Lethal Protector. As a screenwriter, Michelini worked on two episodes of the animated series Iron Man Armored Adventures with Bob Layton as a co-writer, and wrote short films Elevator and Nobody's Tomorrow. So that's the biography as I've lifted from mostly from Wikipedia. And at this point, before we do the question and answer session, I'm going to just ask you to chime in because you've been very gentlemanly and quiet so far. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you could, you know, give your opinions and your, you know, your just your take on Michelini's career, because I know that you're a big follower. I am a huge fan of David Michelini. Um, he's actually one of my very favorite comic book writers. Um, I had the pleasure some years ago when Chris Honeywell and I were doing uh, Two True Freaks regularly. Um, we had him on, I believe it was Star Wars Monthly Mondays, but don't hold me to it. But we, we had a, a an extensive interview with him. And he was just a delight. He's one of those guys where, you know, you ask him a question, then he's just off and running, you know. So it was, it was you know, I'm, I'm like you. I don't consider myself a good interviewer. I don't typically like doing interviews. I don't typically even like interview episodes. But, you know, you get the right person. Uh, and, you know, if for one that they're interesting or they've had an interesting career or whatever, but. Also, you know, you get those ones that do more than just go, gee, that was a long time ago, I don't remember. He he just had fun stories, he's full of a lot of energy, and he's just, you know, he's just a cool guy. Um, plus, you know, he's got just an incredible imagination. Um, I'm always struck when I, when I see things like this, and I, I was kind of following along with you on this Wikipedia, you know, it's the nature of Wikipedia that it never tells you, you know, who the author or authors were of, of any article that you, you pull up on there. But I always find these things interesting how they pick and choose what to focus on when they're doing biographies or something like that, because, 
to me, two of the biggest things that he did, um, at, at least in my life, you know, two of the, the, the most influential things that really brought him to my notice um, don't even get a mention in this uh, this Wikipedia article other than I believe they are listed. Yeah, they're listed in his credits, but not in the main article itself, which was, of course, his run on Star Wars, which I was going to say arguably. I don't even know if it's arguable. I, I think his run on Star Wars, Marvel Star Wars, uh, is the best era of that title. It wasn't very long, and it's kind of scattered. He, he didn't really come on as the regular writer until I think it was like 55. He had a couple issues before that, but it's basically 55 through 69, and then he came back one more time at number 78 for just a one-off story, and he did one of the annuals. But just that, that simple stretch between 55 and 69 uh, was incredible. And, and the, the really amazing thing about it was that this was – the period between the Empire Strikes Back and the Return of the Jedi, where Han Solo was off the table. And you wouldn't think that'd be very fertile ground for great storytelling. And I think with lesser writers, it, it wouldn't have been. But he just did amazing things with what he had to work with. And I, I love that run. He just did some really cool stuff. He introduced, you know, one of the very best characters of the entire series during that run and just a lot of cool and fun ideas. And then also, um, he did the bulk of the further adventures of Indiana Jones. You know, John Byrne originated that title. He did the first two issues and then famously bailed on the title because of issues with uh, the Lucasfilm representative that Marvel was working with. They just pissed Burn off and he left. So number three, I forget who wrote and drew number three. It was kind of a, a fill-in, like an emergency, like get somebody on this quick type of thing. But then Michelini came on as the regular, regular writer at issue four and I believe was solid on it through 27, or pretty solid anyway. There might be a fill-in issue here or there. And while the Art quality of that title is kind of all over the place. His writing was really good. And and the amazing thing he did on both of those titles, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, was that he predicted a lot of things that we would see in later films of both series. You know, ideas that he came up with that would later I don't want to say Lucasfilm ripped him off or anything. I think it's more that he just predicted things that they would eventually do. And that that's really cool. That I think that really speaks highly to his you know, his intelligence and his imagination that you know, he was in tune with those properties enough to predict things that would that would come along later. And in the case of Star Wars, he predicted things where Lucasfilm had to kind of shut him down like no no you can't do that. And it was fun in the interview that we had with him where he said, well, he just learned something that was going to be in the new movie. <laughs> you know, every time they would do that, you know, and they would kind of tell him, no, no, you can't do that. It was pretty obvious. OK, well, that must be showing up in the new movie type of thing, which which it was. So it's, it's really cool. But it's really fun, you know, to look at both of those series and just see the amazing amount of stuff that that he was able to predict, you know, would come along later in, in subsequent films and things. Um, but just an amazing writer. And again, you know, the article kind of gave uh, it gave a mention, but I felt like it was kind of a short shrift to um, his run on Aquaman. I 
as a kid, I loved that stuff. And it wasn't until years later that I, I put him together with having been the writer on that stuff. But I grew up loving, you know, that, that early Aquaman stuff. And I always, you know, I always remembered it was Jim Apparel. It's kind of, you know, Batman, that early Batman stuff. And Aquaman is where I really fell in love with Jim Apparel as an artist. So I think of that as like the Apparel Aquaman. But the bulk of that was written by uh, Michelinie. And really good stuff, especially that one that the article mentioned um, where Aqua Baby was killed. That That's a story that sticks with me to this very day. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, it, it really changed up that character of Aquaman and everything. And, you know, they continue to kind of mine that from time to time. You know, different writers do when they handle that character. But, uh, you know, that to me was like a, a classic uh, you know, issue of the 70s, you know, a real kind of a game changer in a lot of ways. So yeah, yeah I'm a huge fan of this guy. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with what you said that for some reason, uh, like when I think of the Aquaman run, I, th- I think of Jim Aparo. That's the first thing that comes to mind and that's really not right. fair to him. And I think that, uh, a lot has been for whatever reason, I, you know, like I don't hear Michelinie's name being mentioned. So I feel like he's fallen out of the, consciousness of the readers at this point and the things he's done he's done so many great things that he should not absolutely well we're gonna you know, but, but, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm you know just when you when you mentioned the jim apparel thing it, it it tells me i'm every bit as guilty of it as as, as everybody else <laughs> you know and yes give well, jim apparel his, his credit but you know give michelini his credit as well absolutely well, as we get into this, I, I think it's interesting to learn um, that there's someone that uh, Michelini gives credit to to helping his early career and everything, who is another victim of this very same thing where the guy was a powerhouse and, and just, you know, I mean, really churned out a lot of material and some really great material. And it's a name that I think has fallen out of, you know, people just are like, who? So, you know, we'll discuss that as we get to it, too. But, yeah. Um, you know, Michelini's still around and that, that is a shame, you know, for him to still be around and still be alive and still working and still not quite, you know, have uh, a higher, uh, a bigger rep, you know, uh, reputation and everything as I feel like he deserves. Cause the guy is an amazing writer. I mean, he really is. I mean, just a fantastic writer. He's right up there with, you know, some of the greats to me, you know, like like Stan Lee and like you know, Roger Stern and, you know, some of the other ones I'm sure that we'll mention. You know, he's he's very, very high on my list. All right. So now, I mean, I'm sure we have a lot more to say about him as we go on or we have definitely more to say. Uh, but I figure it's worthwhile. Now I'll read the questions. You'll read the answers. And after each one, we'll discuss a little bit more. You ready? Sure. All right, so the first question Absolutely. I presented to him was, can you provide a basic history of how you initially became a comic writer, as well as the pitfalls in doing so? After graduating from college and spending a year working at a commercial film production company, I was back living in Kentucky with my parents and writing the occasional TV commercial or industrial film strip uh, script. I'd gotten back into comics in college after, quote-unquote, growing up and giving all my comics away when I was 14. So I was excited when I read that DC Comics was starting an apprenticeship uh, program where they'd give promising applicants a job in the DC offices so they could learn the ropes and then go freelance. 
I believe the only person to actually follow that route was writer Martin Pascoe or Marty Pascoe. I sent a resume to DC for the apprenticeship program, but it mistakenly wound up on editor Joe Orlando's slush pile, industry slang for unsolicited manuscripts. Joe's assistant, Michael Fleischer, read it and sent, it, uh, sent me a response saying that I showed promise, but they couldn't work with anyone outside the New York City area. He added, he added that if I ever found myself closer, I could contact him. That wasn't exactly a foot in the door. Heck, it was barely a toe. But two weeks later, I had closed out my few commercial commitments, loaded up my old Toyota Corolla, and with all my possessions, including my entire life savings of $500, moved to Queens. When I showed up on DC's doorstep and said, well, here I am, they pretty much had to give me a chance. After a couple of months of tutoring and critiques by Michael, I was ready to submit stories to Joe himself, and the rest is either history or infamy, depending on your viewpoint. As for pitfalls, I guess the biggest was watching my slim bank account get slimmer by the day with no guarantee I'd be able to bolster it with new checks and living with depression and worry in a city where I had no friends or relatives, no one to tell me it's going to be okay. There was the ever-present fear that I'd have to go back to living in my parents' house, a failure at what I'd wanted to do ever since I was a kid. I I have to say <laughs> that it doesn't hit home because I didn't do anything like that. But it hits home because I know I would have never had the nerve to do something like that. Yeah. And that takes an incredible amount of yeah. guts to I, just, I like just up and of, leave like that. Yeah. I, I, I like I related, these kind of stories where some – I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I related to, to one of my, my best friends, uh, my friend Romeo. You, you, I think you met him when you were in town last time. Uh, we, went to, we, you know, we went to high school together. We went to college together. We were very close, and we both had an interest in film, and we took a film class together. And you know, He had an opportunity uh, bef- in our senior year of college before graduating – to get a job in California uh, with uh, Panavision, who supplied cameras and film and whatever for things, at an incredibly low-paying rate, uh, you know, leaving to go to a place where he didn't have any kind of, uh, you know, base of friends or anything, and he, he did it. He took he, he he left school without graduating. He went out there and. You know, now he's out there directing episodes of TV shows that we've all watched, and 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 he's, you know, he, he, the nice thing about it is he's pretty humble about the whole thing. When you talk to him, you know, he'll 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 lie and tell me that I could have done the same thing that he did, uh, you know, even though we both know I couldn't have. Uh, but just the nerve it took to do that and to see it be a success, I think it's a rare thing. And the fact that I can relate to it with a friend of mine is is nice. Uh, but I just, you know, it made me very conscious of it, having a friend who did that. So I can't tell you how much I respect his doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm a sucker for these kind of stories, you know, where, where somebody took a, a real chance and, you know, really, you know, felt, you know, was worried and, you know, felt like, you know, everything could come crashing down, but it worked out for them. You know, I, I love stories like that. You know, I, I guess there's there's 
you know, it, the mentality it would take is probably a nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of thing. You know, he only had $500 to his name. So if he had lost it all and had to make his way back to Kentucky, I guess, you know, it would have been like, well, you know, I lost $500. Uh, but keep in mind that by today's standards, that was probably, I don't know, $3,000. Uh, right. But still, <laughs> you know, just the same to come to New York when you're a Kentucky native it's got to be intimidating. Uh, I just, like I said, I just can't tell you how much I respect that. Well, also, you know, there's the thing here that, you know, this is, this is, you know, as he says at the end, you know, something he'd wanted to do ever since he was a kid. So I, I think if he had failed, it, it would have hit that much harder because of that. You know, it was something he he desperately wanted to do, something you know, he probably felt like, you know, he was he was born to do or meant to do. And those type of failures, you know, they, they hit that much harder. You know, they, they really, you know what I mean? Those yeah. are kind of those soul-crushing type of things. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm it's, curious, I'm too, sure it would have been. You know, where in Queens he, uh, he lived when he was there, he just says move to Queens, but he doesn't say, you know, specifically, like, where. Hey, we could have visited. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, he, he uh, was one of the writers that really made a point of placing Peter Parker in that environment. You know, when he during the time that he was writing uh, Amazing Spider-Man, and I can't help but wonder if he was drawing on you know personal experience and you know familiarity with the place he'd actually lived, which I think is really cool. Yeah, and I don't know his current situation. I I don't know if like. If he's become a, an adopted New Yorker for his, you know, for his life since then, or if, you know, after he started to get a foothold into the industry, if he decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to Kentucky or go somewhere else, I have no idea. I can't remember where he lives now. I did know at one time, and now for the life of me, I, I can't remember where he said he he currently resides. Of course, that was that was a good number of years ago too. So you can, he may always have moved again or whatever. But at the time I I spoke to him, I. I can't remember where he said he uh, he lived at. See, I, I would like just for you know talking about like taking the nerve and doing it all. I would like to know that he did stay and he's still a, a you know a New Yorker now. Uh, <laughs> but you know that's not necessarily the case, and you know this certainly he's not required to do that just to create you know the fairy tale story for my benefit. Right. So the second question I asked him was. Is there anyone in the industry that you would credit as a mentor in your career? When I was still living with relatives, I reached out to a couple of pros whose work I admired. My college major was TV and films, so I was used to film scripts, uh, scripts, but I didn't have a clue as to how comic script, uh, comic book scripts were formatted. Marv Wolfman, then an editor at Marvel, typed up a couple of panels off the top of his head to show me one. Uh, one way it was done, and Doug Mensch sent me an entire script as well as a uh, as a tear sheet. I don't know what that is of a tear sheet of an article he'd written for one of the Chicago newspapers about writing comics. Such generosity to a total unknown made me think, "Wow, comics people are really nice." I've tried to follow in their footsteps in keeping that image alive, and it would be remiss of me to leave out Michael Fleischer. 
he was a harsh taskmaster calling parts of my submissions, quote unquote, shit when they deserved it. That tough love approach forced me to get better, and I'll ever, I'll ever be thankful for that. We ended up good friends and visited each other on occasion, even after I had moved from New York. And, okay, so stepping out of this, this was the other person that I wanted to mention was Michael Fleischer. He is another um, comics writer. Uh, I, I'd, I'd call him a comics legend uh, who was just just a, a hell of a writer. I mean, he was a, he did a, an amazing body of work, you know, look him up sometime. His, uh, his, uh, you know, Mike's amazing world, uh, credits are, are just phenomenal. You know, just like David Michelini, you know, he, he touched a lot of different books and, uh, you know, had an epic length run on Jonah Hex in particular. I mean, he really kind of, he didn't create the character, but he kind of, solidified the mold of that character, if you know what I mean. I mean, right. he gave him all his, his best character beats and, and legend and everything like that. And unfortunately, he's another one of those that I think is just kind of, you know, if, if he ever was one of the big names, I think he's kind of fallen out of favor now to a point where a lot of people probably have no concept of him. And that that's really a shame for a guy that did, you know, such an amazing body of work. Uh, unfortunately, he has passed away. He's he's gone now. But it's neat to find out that you know that he had an influence on uh, on Michel, <clears throat> excuse me, on Michelini and that they were friends. That's that's pretty neat. Now, uh, to to defend myself before I crucify myself on this, uh, we you know we did this question and answer session about three months ago, two months ago, something like that, and I read it. Several times then, but I forgot the fact that he ended this sentence or ended that question with uh, after I had moved from New York. <laughs> so that answers the question that I asked if, between us after the last one. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I love hearing about people who kind of pay it forward that way. Uh, you know, Doug Mensch in, in particular, uh, you know, that he went out of his way to help him uh, when, you know, he didn't even know him from a hole in the wall. Uh, and also Fleischer, like you say, he's another name who who does not get the credit he deserves uh, no. in the industry. Uh, and sometimes the tough love, you know, as, as I've grown, you know, as from a kid to an old man, uh, you know, I know that there's different kinds of managing styles that are necessary. Some people need to kick in the ass. Some people need, you know, the gentle touch. Uh, it sounds to me like he needed the kick in the ass and, uh, Frankly, while I very rarely needed that ever to get motivated to do work, if I had ever gotten into a creative industry like this, I think I would have required that also because I would have been too quick to think, oh, what I wrote is great. And I would have need somebody, needed somebody to say, no, this is shit. You know? So I, I think that there's something to be said for that. Yeah. And the next question I asked, for years we've heard about the Marvel method and its way of creating a collaboration between writers and artists to varying degrees. How did you work under those parameters, and did you find it was significantly different with different artists? Are there any that were easier or more difficult to work with? I worked for DC Comics for five years, and 99% of what I wrote was full script. That is, the script called for each panel to have a description of the picture and any captions, dialogue, sound effects, etc., then the next panel, then the next, and so on. When I moved over to Marvel, their process was that the writer turned in a prose plot that told the story in order 
adding what visual descriptions the artist might need for clarification and maybe some indication of the mood of a scene. That was sent to a penciler who broke the plot down into pages and panels and told the story visually. After that, the pages, the actual pencil pages early on, and then Xerox copies later, were sent to the writer to add captions and dialogue. A letterer then lettered the copy and sound effects on the boards, and they were sent on to an ink artist for final touches and to make the artwork suitable for printing. I hated it. I had had so much more to say over what happened with the story when I was writing full script. I felt I was giving up a lot of control. But I soon realized that Marvel style was actually better for the end product. Artists tend to have more enthusiasm when they have more freedom, and that usually results in more fun in the pictures. Plus, by seeing the pictures before I added the dialogue, I could use words to clarify something if I felt it wasn't apparent in the artwork. More importantly, if the visuals were clear, which was most of the time with good artists, I didn't have to explain what was going on in the pictures, something that was often necessary in full scripts to guarantee that the penciler understood what you wanted. The result was that I didn't have to use great gobs of copy, which helped keep the pacing smooth and allowed me to use those words to add things that might not be showable. The taste of a charbroiled steak, the smell of a garb of garbage in a sidewalk trash can, and so forth. These days... I vastly prefer Marvel style, but ironically, Marvel now mostly requests full scripts from writers, since communication submissions are so often done via the Internet. Most of the time, things went smoothly with artists working Marvel style, at least in my experience. Each artist has his or, uh, his or her particular styles and quirks, but over a period of a few issues, you get used to each other and play off of one another's strengths. A good argument for keeping teams on series for long runs. Of course, there were sometimes, uh, excuse me, of course, there are sometimes are pencilers who look at plots or even full scripts as simply suggestions, but thankfully those are few and far between. This, this really, to me, sheds a lot of light on something that I know you and I and Bill have talked a lot about over the years. Um, and it sheds a lot of light on essentially, you know, to me, really the big differences between say Marvel and DC in the 19, I was going to say seventies and eighties, probably even earlier than that. It, it really does, uh, illuminate a lot of things. And it, and it makes me realize now why, you know, there's those stories that we've criticized that, wow, you know, like, you know, not to dump on him, but like Roy Thomas comes immediately to mind where there's just, tons and tons and tons of exposition and a lot of times it's over describing what's going on and and i know you and i have made the comment before it's like i know i'm seeing it you know and this really helps explain why that would be um in certain instances depending on which company it is and what method they're working with and probably what artists and uh and writers were, you know, were teamed up for different projects and everything. But yeah, I, of of all the different uh, aspects of this uh, this interview, this this was the part I found really fascinating. Like, okay, that that really, you know, this, you know, I've read about the Marvel method before and everything, but I don't know that I'd ever had it broken down in quite this way to make me go, okay, I get it now, you know, and and have it really click like. 
why I've seen certain things and certain tropes in old comics that were just weird or annoying or, or just kind of puzzling to me. So yeah, I, I liked this part. Yeah. I, uh, I feel like the Marvel method was created to accommodate the fact that Stan was, you know, the writer for more, more, more books than you could do a full script on. Right. Uh, so, and I think if you, if you kind of read between the lines a little bit on it, I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, a variation depending on who the artist was. I think with somebody like Jack Kirby, uh, he could trust that he'd say, hey, Jack, let's do a story with, uh, you know, the uh, Frightful Four and we'll have them do something where they, you know, they steal the Fantastic Four's powers and they do this and they do that. And, you know, he'd give them basically like a three paragraph description of what he wanted. And Jack Kirby could run wild with it. And then Stan would reel it back in a little bit with his dialogue. Yep. Whereas some other creators, and I'm not sure who would fit this mold, but some others I think would require a little bit more detail, and he probably gave more detail to them. You know, and and I think the the interesting thing is sometimes when you compare when you look at uh, the uh, early issues of Amazing Spider-Man, because it looks to me like there was a lot of points where they didn't necessarily agree. What was drawn was not necessarily what Stan wanted to be drawn, and he would dialogue it or or you know, uh, put narration balloons that wouldn't agree with it. And from what what we're getting in this interview, I don't want to go too far into Stan Lee on this, but from what we're getting in this interview, it sounds like there's an element of that, that, you know, when you work together, you know, you develop a working relationship and you, you know, you find out what, you know, where, where the artist needs his hand held and where, uh, you know, you, you should just let them build on your creativity and, and give you, you know, give you a, a story that's even more rich than what you gave them. Uh, and then there's others, like he said, that, you know, sometimes there were, were some that would, would only take the scripts as suggestions. And I really feel like as a writer, if you get that, especially if you have any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of uh, credit in the bank on it, you'd be like, you know what? I don't want to work with this guy anymore. I, I think that's well, the way I, I would feel at least. Yeah, I, I think it's very telling that after describing the process and everything that Michelini says, I hated it. And it seems like he came to be able to work in it. He he never really says, unless I'm misinterpreting him, he never really says, you know, I turned around and I, I came to really embrace it later. I think it's more of I got used to it and I was able to work within that structure, but it was never my preferred because – I can I can see benefits both ways. I, I kind of see, you know, Stan's point of of why he created this thing, and especially as you said, I think a lot of it was for convenience. Honestly, I don't think it was necessarily to make the process better. I think it was to make the process easier for him because he was, you know, pretty much single handedly create, you know, writing and creating the entire Marvel universe himself. So it had to be, you know, to make it easier for himself and kind of, you know, put some work off onto other people and everything. But, you know, there's I can see where there would be definite downsides to it, too. You know, one big one I would see is, you know, what if you get saddled with a shit artist? You know, that's got to be frustrating to you, you know, as a writer, you know, you, you know, especially if you've you've written a story that 
you know, maybe you feel is a really good story or, you know, is very personal to you or, or just a story that you've envisioned it a certain way. Like, okay, this is a pretty cool story and I see it this way. And then when it comes back from the artist, it's nothing like what you envisioned and maybe even poorer, you know, depending on the quality of the, the artist and that sort of, that would be maddening to me, you know. But also, you know, the, the biggest thing, getting back to, you know, kind of the point of, of you know, why you had contacted Michelini in the first place, I also see this as a massive contributor to all of the crap we've seen in the past, you know, decades now of arguments about who created what and who was more influential about certain aspects. And, I mean, probably the, the biggest and most famous one would be the you know, the Stanley versus Jack Kirby thing. And I don't really want to get into all that, but you see where I'm going with that. You know, that, you know, when you've got, you know, the guy that, that comes up with the ideas and he's forfeiting a lot of his say by handing just kind of an outline to the artist. And then the artist contributes, you know, an amazing amounts to that, out of their own fertile imagination, then the line gets blurred between who created what. And I think that's the situation that Michelini, unfortunately, found himself in with, say, Venom. And, yeah, that that's, you know, a whole can of worms as well. So that, that can't be fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, you know, it, there are no answers for this, especially, and I think he acknowledged that in his Facebook post, that, you know, the, the character as it exists now is a combination of his creation plus all the changes that have occurred over the years. That's the character now. But he still started that thought. You know, he still planted the original seed. And I think that needs to be, you know, that needs to be acknowledged at some level. Uh, one of the things that su- excuse me, surprised me was how vocal apparently Eric Larson is uh, in a negative way towards Michelini, you know, trying, I guess, trying to defend his friend, uh, what's his name, Todd? Uh, McFarlane? Todd McFarlane, yeah. Uh, but, well, you know, and, and, and to be, to be mean, fair, Ron, Ron Friends, who had no horse in the race, uh, posted uh, another uh, thing that I had shared on our Facebook page defending Michelini's presentation of, you know, how he created the character. You know, David Michelini, you know, he, he's a class act. Ron Friends, you know, is a class act. Hell of a nice guy. I, I you know, I actually got to meet him when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, creators that just are all about the fans. He, he is. And even to this day, he is, you know, just a hell of a nice guy. Todd McFarlane, don't really know him, never met him. But everything I've ever heard says that, yes, there's some ego there, but that he's still all about his fans and and everything like that. And still, you know, basically a really nice guy and everything. Eric Larson, he's just, I mean, plain and simple. I mean, I've never heard good things about the guy. He seems like just an egotistical dick. And while I used to like a lot of his early work and everything, just a lot of the way he's treated people over the years, the arguments he's constantly getting in with other creators, 
you know, his very famous battles with, with certain creators, you know, in the media and everything. And just a lot of his personal politics really just put the, put me off the guy. I just, I, you know, I try not to be completely dismissive of people, especially people I don't know personally, but in his particular case, he has clearly been put into that category. He just strikes me as such a complete dick. So it doesn't really surprise me. And, you know, as someone who was really invested in all of this stuff as it was coming out, um, his contribution to Venom, I mean, I, I'm amazed the guy would even have the nerve to really speak up and go, hey, wait a minute about the whole Venom creation thing, because his contribution to Venom was the thing where I finally bailed on the character, because up to a point um, when the character was new, I owned everything Venom-related, everything related to the living black costume, because I that was kind of my era of Spider-Man. I loved that stuff. I loved the black costume. I loved the symbiote, you know, living costume and all that. And I was really invested when when Venom first came along, uh, you know, as created by Michelinie and as drawn by McFarlane. I, I loved the character, and where I really soured on it was after Larson got his hands on it and he gave him the big stupid crooked jaw and the the you know the prehensile tongue and the green slime and all, he ruined the character as far as I'm concerned. After that, I just had no interest in him at all because he just became. Well, kind of what he is now. I, I look at the Venom that's out there now and the early Venom as presented in like, you know, Spider-Man like, uh, you know, amazing Spider-Man like 298 through 300. And, and they're completely different characters as far as I'm concerned. He was really cool and he was kind of just the evil Spider-Man. And then he became this freakish monster that like ate people and the stupid slavering tongue and all that. I just, oh, I hate that. It, it just... You know, sometimes things become victims of their own success, and that was kind of the the thing with that character, as far as I was concerned. But yeah, I, I blame Eric Larson for all that. So, yeah, I'm I'm surprised he would even, you know, try to try to glom on to anything, you know, as far as the the famous and success of that character, because he ruined that character, as far as I, you know, in my opinion. So. Well, I think there, you know, some people would disagree with that because some people think they prefer the character this way. Uh, I tend to agree with you to the extent that uh, that I do prefer it the way it was when it was slightly more subdued than the really, yeah. really over the top, like you said, with the tongue and all of that stuff. Uh, and but you know, I, I also, I and I do blame Larson for some of that, but I also blame the company to some extent for oversaturating the market with him oh yeah you know it, it just got out of control i mean you know in in the 1990s it seemed like you know every book had to have venom or ghost rider or the punisher you know or spider-man uh and and they they really did hurt some of those characters i i, I think you know punisher and ghost rider in particular uh they hurt by oversaturating the market saturating the market with it uh so i i blame both of them Anyway, moving on, the next question yep. was, when you worked for companies other than Marvel, did that collaborative dynamic change much? And were there company-driven parameters to your methodology? 
Not really. I remember that in the early days, Valiant didn't want you to use thought balloons or sound effects, but that was just something the writer had to adjust to. Nothing that affected the writer-artist relationship. Now, I probably wouldn't have asked this question this way if I had known the answer to question three before I wrote question four. Uh, I probably <laughs> would have elaborated more on the question, the, the response in question three, but, you know, the, the limitations are what they were. Uh, the one thing I can comment on that particular response is I think it is short-sighted and silly to eliminate thought balloons. Uh, when, when you read a prose novel, very, very frequently they tell you what the character is thinking. Uh, the, you right. know, it, it, it is a form of, of, of telling a story. Uh, so I think maybe they overdid it. You know the the original, you know, comics in in the Marvel universe. You know, every other panel. Oh, if only they knew that underneath this mask, I am so and so. You know, I mean, it, it was you know those weren't realistic thoughts that the characters would have. But a lot of times when they tell you, you know, what their motivation is or whatever, uh, you know that that was that that's a good part of storytelling. And you, you don't want them to have to verbalize everything because people don't verbalize their every thought. At least most people don't. Uh, so I think, you know, they could have said, be a little bit more discreet with your thought bubbles. Don't overdo them, but to eliminate them totally, I think was a poor move, you know, and then you see people, you know, like, uh, I guess like Jeff Loeb who would make the narration, actually the thought bubbles of the character. I, I have come to hate that. Yeah. I've come to really, really hate that. Yeah, it was a way to get around that rule, though. I think it's a bad rule. I don't. I, I think I don't disagree with you because then I think it became overused, much like thought bubbles were. Uh, right. But I do think it was a way around the rule to actually present some thoughts. Uh, I, I think the rule is bad. I, I, I just think it should have been. You know what, editors, be do your job and edit. And if somebody's overusing the thought bubbles, point it out to them and have them fix it. I mean, I've read a, a good number of stories now to where at the end of it, because of the story using the narration box in place of thought balloons to get us inside that character's head, at the end of the story, the story then didn't make sense because it was like, who was the character talking to? And in some instances, you find out that the character's actually dead at the end of the story. So then it was like, really, like, how was I giving this? <laughs> you know, and I and so I came to I've come to really, really hate that. It was kind of novel and, and neat when it first started and it was used sparingly. But then eventually it became a trope in itself. And I've come to really, really hate it. Give me back the old thought balloons. I, I think. But like you say, the thing with thought balloons is that, you know, for a lot of uh, comic book fans, it's very old timey now because it hasn't been done in so long, you know, regularly in so long. But also it was that thing of, yeah, sometimes it was way overused for exposition. A lot of times it was annoying because it was the way that um, certain writers would would. Uh, get a brand new reader up to speed or something like that. So they were recapping things in a thought balloon that were kind of, you know, it was like, why would the character be thinking about this? You know? Um, but also, you know, one of the really annoying ones was when, you know, you'd have a character 
um, I don't know, like fall off a building, you know, and then they'd have like 17 panels of thought balloons. And it's like, if you fall off a, you know, a, a 10 story building, you've got seconds to live. You know, you don't have you know, 17 panels worth of exposition in your head, you know. So things yeah, and, like and the that, people watching you, know? you fall don't have time to discuss it and then take action to save you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's some things that just common sense has to be applied. Okay, the next question I asked was: Is there any item of your work that you look back on with particular pride? I'm proud of the alcoholism uh, alcoholism storyline Bob Layton and I explored when we were co-plotting Iron Man. Editor in chief Jim Shooter gave us a great a uh, great deal of trust and freedom, and it paid off in increased sales. Uh, Certificate of Merit from the a National Alcohol Abuse Awareness Organization and the true satisfaction of telling an exciting story with a universal human conflict at its core. I'm also proud that characters such as Venom have found a permanent place in the history of Marvel Comics. That was something I never dreamed of when I plucked my first issue of Amazing Spider-Man from a spinner rack at a convenience store in 1968. I would say that his pride is well-placed. Uh, that the alcoholism storyline, as written by Michelini and Bob Layton, was groundbreaking, uh, well-handled, and riveting. The problem is, much like uh, Hank Pym's wife abuse, it's become like a defining characteristic for Iron Man. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's the, the only problem I have with it, is people who are not as creative or subtle tend to just beat it to death yep yeah i I will completely agree with you on that i can't help but wonder is is this you know i'm of two minds of this because it's only you know he only just has the two paragraphs answer for, for this and it's just you know the iron man story and then you know the creation of venom you know becoming a part of marvel comics you know spider man history and that's it and I'm of two minds. It's like he's either very humble and and not going on and on, which I kind of wish he would, because there's a lot of stuff I you know that he had a hand in that I hold in very high regard. That I'd, I'd love to hear that he also you know holds it in high regard. Or um, you know the other thing is maybe he just doesn't think as highly of his other work. These these really are the two that kind of stand out, and everything else is just you know work he did you know or, or whatever his attitude is toward it and that that would be kind of a shame if it is the latter because again you know i i think the guy is a hell of a writer and i think he's he's really done a lot of great work so i i was it it just i don't know it kind of bothers me a little bit that he didn't go on just a little bit more you know there's there's other works of his i would love to have heard him mention that you know, because I hold them in high regard, I, I would hope he holds them in very high regard as well. But Well, I think it's a fine line between personal pride and false modesty and legitimate modesty. Uh, right. If you overstate your personal pride, there's nothing wrong with having personal pride, but if you overstate it, people are going to think you're an egomaniac. I don't think he is. I think the fact that he, he you know... I, I think the way he presents himself shows to, shows him to me as as not being such. Uh, I think he 
I think he presents himself as being uh, rightfully proud, but he doesn't he he isn't going on and on and on about it. Uh, so I think I, I just I basically I respect the way he set it forth. That's all. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, and then you combine that with the next question and answer, which I think, you know, go hand in hand. Uh, I asked, is there any item of your work that you would prefer to forget? And his I response was, <laughs> I don't know. I forgot. <laughs> which I think is a great response. Uh, I think any creative person and, and, you know, from mildly creative to incredibly creative, I think there's usually an element of. I could have done this better. I could have done that better. Uh, right. But I think there's also got to be, you know, you, you, you have to be able to, to just move on because if, if you just linger on, on the things that you don't feel are as good, I think it, it tends to bog you down. You want to learn from your mistakes and move on. Um, I think it's one of the problems I've spoken to several artists about uh, working on, you know, like the digital programs to to create art and the problem is they become george lucas and they think it's never complete and i think you have to learn how to learn, learn when the time is to just walk away from a certain thing uh even if you feel it's not your best work if that makes sense tried, in comparison to this absolutely i remember when when chris honeywell and i interviewed him i, I tried gingerly to to touch on this with him because I, I had a specific book in mind and I, I, I haven't listened to that interview in a long time and it was a long time ago, but to my memory, it went something like I mentioned the book to him to see like what he would say about it. And because he seemed like he didn't really remember or he didn't really get the gist of what I was hinting at, that I kind of let it go, That that's how I remember it. But the book that I, I brought up was Star Wars number 78. Now, that ended up being, when, when Chris and I covered all of Marvel Star Wars on our show, and we got all the way through the series, we did kind of a wrap-up episode where we picked, like, the best stories and the best characters and the best this and the best that. But we also had a few um, worse. You know, what were the worst this, that, or the other? And one of the things we did was what were the worst single issues? And sadly, his was one of the worst single issues. I don't think we voted it the very worst because I can think of one that I think is a lot worse than, than his. But the problem with that issue was that it had two big problems in it. For one, it was a flashback story that took place between Empire and Jedi where we find out that Wedge got left behind on Hoth. Now, that in itself, to me, was kind of a silly concept that they just forgotten him they just left him behind so that you know there was already a stretch to begin with but then the biggest problem with that story was that the relationship that he was given to luke and the entire backstory origin of the character that is told in that issue for wedge was wrong he actually was given um, the backstory and relationship with Luke of Biggs, who was dead. He died in the first movie. 
And so he somehow got mixed up and, and kind of like amalgamated these two characters to where Wedge was like the new bigs. And it was just wrong. And like I said, I kind of wanted to, I don't want to say call him out, but I wanted to discuss it. You know, the one time I really got to talk to him, but through the course of that it, it just, it didn't really work out because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to seem like a dick. I didn't want to embarrass the guy and I, and I certainly didn't want to insult him. So I just kind of let it go. But I've always wondered, you know, if, if he ever, you know, thought back on that or whatever, if that would be one that he would, he would say, Oh yeah, I'd prefer to get, forget that one because I got it, you know, all the details wrong kind of thing. But that's, you know, of, of all the things I've read from him, you know, just off the top of my head anyway, that's the only one I can ever remember really standing out as like, Ooh, that's a Michelini, but it's not good. You know, that, that particular one. And again, it's not really like it was a terrible issue. It's just that, the the backstory of the character is completely wrong for that character kind of so it was just a it was an error rather than like a terrible story yeah no that makes sense error as opposed to terrible story which i think you know i i, I don't want to <laughs> i don't want to wash anybody's hands but i feel like the editors are supposed to catch that right <laughs> exactly it, it, it just feels like like too much of the editorial on some books was just a matter of, yeah, okay, put my name on it, but I'm really not going to really look at this too hard. And then you get the other things, and you talk to some creators, and you find out about, you know, some editors who had an incredibly heavy hand and, you know, would be really in their minds interfering with their work. So I guess there's a, right. a fine line of, of where you can go with that. Okay, the next one, I'm getting in a little bit into the meat of what started the conversation in the first place. I asked, you are generally cre- credited as creator or co-creator of Venom, Carnage, Scott Lang, and War Machine. Can you provide the genesis of the creation of each character as well as an indication as to any input provided by the artist and or company directives? Okay, first off, I had nothing to do with creating the War Machine character. I believe it was Len Kaminsky and Kev Hopgood uh, who actually brought that hero into the world. Bob Layton and I just came up with the guy inside the armor, James Rhodey Rhodes. Our goal was to give Tony Stark a friend he could hang with and just talk to. At the time, his social circle pretty much consisted of other superheroes and his babe of the week. We wanted to ground him in the real world, and having a quote-unquote normal buddy... Uh, was our attempt at that. The movie Iron Man 3 had its faults, but I absolutely loved the part where Tony and Rhodey took on the bad guys together without powers or armor, just guns, guts, and each other. Scott Lang came about when I was looking for something new to write and realized Ant-Man was no longer an active character in the Marvel Universe. I got an okay from above to come up with a new version, and that's what became Scott Lang. My favorite aspect of that character was his, at the time, 10-year-old daughter, Casey. Uh, It just struck me uh, as an interesting situation to have a child whose father is a superhero, but she can't tell anyone. And then he's got here, he's got bullies. This is a bully speaking. My dad could beat your wimpy father with one hand tied behind his back. Casey, oh yeah? Well, my dad is, um, er, uh, never mind. (laughs) I regret I never had a chance to develop those characters further. Venom, as I said uh, many times before, came from the fact that the alien symbiote didn't trigger Spider-Man's early warning spider sense. 
I wanted to explore what having a foe whose only goal was to kill Spider-Man but didn't give any warning before attacking, how that would affect Peter Parker's mind and soul. How that sudden vulnerability might shake his confidence in his ability to protect his loved ones as well as to keep himself alive. Carnage sprang from my realization that a lot of readers hadn't noticed Venom's subtle secondary motivation. Under his twisted rage against Spider-Man was an undercurrent of need to protect uh, innocent would-be victims. He saw himself as innocent until, in his mind, Spider-Man had destroyed his life. Of course, if Venom saw a mewing cat up a tree, he'd uh, make a beeline to save it, even if that meant smashing through a busload of orphans and nuns to do so. Because, you know, he was nuts. Uh... To point up this twisted sense of ethics, I wanted to have a character who was a true psychopath, having uh, no, uh, he says, having no, no morals. I, I think it's supposed to say something else there, having no morals or sense of wrongdoing. Uh, I wanted to contrast between the two symbiote hosts to make Venom's, quote unquote, gentler feelings more noticeable. And that resulted in carnage. Side note, my original name for the character was Chaos, uh, since that's what he worshipped. But someone pointed out that DC was about to publish something with Chaos in the title, so editor, uh, assistant editor Eric Fine suggested Carnage, which we all uh, thought was great. So that cherry topped off the ser- serial killer Sunday. <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of there's a lot to digest here. Real quick, um, something that occurred to me is I, I know I've seen um, Bob Layton, uh, a number of pictures of Bob Layton at the premiere of Ant Man when Ant Man came out. You know the Marvel Universe Ant Man movie, mm-hmm. but I don't remember Michelini. Did you did you ever hear that he went to that? Because you would think if they were going to have one creator, they'd have the other one there. I don't recall. I, I also didn't see. You know, I I never saw where Layton was there, so I'm not sure. Uh, I can't imagine they would invite one and not the other. Maybe he wasn't able to make it, or maybe we just didn't see him there. Uh, it seems right. You know, it seems like it would be weird to not invite him. Uh, you know, I was getting into a little bit of the, you know, Ant Man was an existing character before this happened, and and. It, there is some follow-up on the other questions on this. Uh, you know, where, where do you take an existing character and go with it? And he did kind of hit on that a little bit, that he went and got permission to do it. So these are, you know, uh, again, what I'm going to get into in, in a later question, uh, what you'd call legacy characters. Uh, but, again, this this is an area where I would have liked to have done some follow-up. I tried to do follow-up in my questions, but I would have, you know, if, if I had a live interview, I probably would have asked a few more questions about it. I do like the aspect that he, he hits on with Venom, you know, wanting to, to really go with the fact that he didn't trigger the spider sense, uh, which, you know, was kind of like, it wasn't swept under the carpet, but it was like, yeah, we're not going to focus on that so much as just to make him crazy, you know, and, and then, you know, I think, like I said, Carnage, or like he said, Carnage is almost a uh, counter discussion to that, which is kind of cool. And I did make the mistake of saying War Machine is somebody he created when it was Rhodey that he created. But I do feel like, in my head, War Machine is a natural step from when Rhodey took over being Iron Man and then moved on to become War Machine. So, you know, again, this starts getting into the, you know, at what point, who is the creator of what? 
you know, and, and he's saying, I created Rhodey, but I did not create War Machine. So, well, I'm I'm looking back at the wiki, and you've got these characters listed in the exact same order as the wiki. So I'm thinking you just, you know, you you pulled these from wiki to ask him about, and that's what they say on the wiki is they say Venom, Carnage, Scott Lang, Ant Man, and War Machine, as opposed to making the distinction of Rhodes, you know, Rhodey, not War Machine. So yeah, it's it's interesting that he himself would make that that distinction. Yeah, which which says to me he's not trying to take credit for what he doesn't do. Even though in my mind it's a natural progression and he should have some credit there. Right. Uh, you know, in his mind he's saying no, no, I I you know I created Rhodey who became Iron Man. I had nothing to do with him becoming War Machine. So uh, you know I I take that as him being you know being reasonable and being fair and not trying to step on anybody else's toes uh the next question that i asked kind of i guess it it, it re you know rehashed some of the stuff that we already talked about because i asked uh, would you distinguish any of them as being a character that you co-created as opposed to creating solely and his response was uh, I've written so much lately about creator, originator, facilitator, defiler. I did this, he did that, and the like that I really, really don't want to get into it again. Which, again, you know, I, I respect that. And I did read uh, his Facebook post on that, which does kind of touch on it. So we'll we'll just let that one go. Now, it, uh, it's interesting, though. I, I just wanted to mention, you know, it's interesting, sure. though, what you said that. Uh, you know that I think it speaks a lot to you know to his whatever that you know that he didn't take credit for War Machine, but I don't know. It's just it's interesting to me. I, I kind of see both sides, I guess, because that would be like say like you know Jerry Robinson taking no uh, taking no credit for like Nightwing. Well, Nightwing wouldn't exist without Robin, you know, because he was Robin. And Jerry Robinson, you know, just uh, you know, just to pull a name out, is one of the the creators of that character. So, I think if you were going to do, you know, what I'm curious. Let me let me. I'm going to click on War Machine here and say, who does it say he's created by? It says. Now it's funny. This says David Michelinie, John Byrne, and Bob Layton. It does not mention the people that he mentioned, which was Len Kaminsky and what was the other dude's name? Um, I'd never even heard of the other guy, to be honest with you. So that's that's Bob interesting. No, yeah, Kev, Kev Hopgood, excuse me. Yeah, I think he I think he's an artist. I think so. That's that's interesting that he credits those people, but. At least Wikipedia does not. I don't know who Marvel credits. With. And of course, we don't want to give too much credit to Wikipedia. You know, we right. we, you know, oh, we, yeah. we do. Uh, you know, we we do give uh, a wide berth to them, and we you know we we use their information a lot. But just the same, we don't want to uh, we don't want to be overly dependent on their information as being accurate either. All right. Well, who does the Marvel the Marvel I'm assuming the Marvel database thing, wiki thing, is run by Marvel, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I would, I would think. It says the same three creators, so I, I don't know, it's, I'm, I'm just, that's interesting. I, I just assume those two names he provided 
have some some nexus to the character, uh, and uh, it would be interesting to to be able to ask him that. So this is saying that is that right? That War Machine debuted in Avengers West Coast ninety four. I thought he first appeared in that. It's like a silver foil within a within a red cover, I think, issue of Iron Man, right? I can't remember the issue number. That's I always thought that was his first, because I sold one of those not long ago for a ton of money. <sighs> Hang on, I gotta look this up real quick now. It's gonna make me nuts. But it was uh it was like something like two eighty one or something like that. Two And now I have to see if I have Avengers West Coast 94, because I think I do. Yeah, it's okay. So I think if if memory serves, he appears at the conclusion of 281, and then he's on the cover of 282. And I always thought that was his first appearance. But according to the Marvel, what the hell is this called? Marvel Fandom Wiki. They're saying that his first that I, that War Machine's first appearance is Avengers West Coast number ninety four. That's interesting because I didn't think that that book went for anything. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I, I I do have it, and I'm pretty sure I bought it for a dollar. Uh, yeah. So I yeah I don't know. Well, I started typing in Avengers West Coast into eBay, and 94 was the very first number that it started to auto-populate. I hope it's going for a lot of money, because I do have it and bought it for a buck. So it's I'm not I planning mean, on selling it, to be honest with you. But Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing it. All, you know, the prices are all over the place here, but, I mean, it's not going for – it's not going for stupid money. You know what I mean? As opposed to – what did I say I thought it was? Iron Man 2 – Let's see, Iron Man 281. Let's see if if it says first. First appearance War Machine. That's what I thought. Yeah, that one's not. Okay, so 281 is the first cameo. 282. This is so weird. So there's a bunch of them listed here as 281, but the covers they're showing are 282. I don't know. So oh, I mean 281 is the other one? Well, he, he sh- it's a cameo. So 282 is the one I thought was like the first full appearance of... Yeah, see, that, one's, that one has higher prices and more... Yeah, that one's going for a lot more. Because this one says first full war machine, but he's large and in charge on Avengers uh, West Coast 94 as well. So I, I don't know. It's very curious. I'm wondering. I'm wondering which uh, which hit the stands first. Well, for what it's worth, I do have Iron Man 282. I do not think I spent much money for it, but I do not have Iron Man 281. I think 80, 281 was one I had to track down as a back issue, but I bought 282 off the stands just because the cover was cool. It's 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 War Machine. 
I remember buying it off the stands because I was like, "Ooh, what's this?" type of thing. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's 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 continue on our uh, discussion with him, though. <laughs> sure. Uh, the next thing I asked, and this this was this one was the one where I really really wish I had a chance to to have talked to him. Uh, I asked to some extent a debate can be made as to those characters being, and I put in quotation, legacy characters. Do you see that as being a factor in their creations? Not sure what you mean by legacy. Uh, something that came from the past that helped generate these characters or something I came up with to pass down to those who followed me? See, I, I kind of felt, and I, I don't want to dog him on this, but I kind of felt like he didn't want to answer the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he just kind of said, huh, and moved on. Uh, so I, I would have clarified that, yes, I was talking about characters that existed that then had to be either changed or updated, you know, in, in, in one instance where, you know, Iron Man was no longer to be Tony Stark. And then you, you know, you, you made Rhodey Tony Stark or, right. you know, Ant-Man existed and then you brought in Scott Lang to be Ant-Man or, uh, you know, even, you know, Spider-Man and you, you came up with Venom to be his, you know, his opposite, uh, you know, whatever the case might be. But, uh, you know, I would have liked to have been able to elaborate on that question a little bit. But again, I think maybe he didn't feel like answering it. So uh, I'll just take that for what it's worth. And, you know, when we move on, that may be the reason why you didn't want to do a live interview. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you don't have the chance to follow up if he doesn't want you to. Uh, anyway, uh, number, question number 10 was your characters have been portray portrayed in various formats, movies, television, live action, animated video games. Uh, how do you feel about, or how have you felt about how they were handled and portrayed? Some good, some bad. I loved what Robert Downey Jr. did with Tony Stark in the first Iron Man movie. Wait, I'm not saying I created Tony Stark. <laughs> oh, God, what am I getting myself into? Uh, I just liked the character a lot and was happy to see him portrayed so close to what Bob Lane and I were doing in the comic. At the opposite end, I hated what they did with Justin Hammer in Iron Man 2. They took a suave English businessman based on actor Peter Cushing and turned him into an embarrassing American buffoon. All the worse because Sam Rockwell is one of my favorite actors. Somewhere in the middle uh, is the first Venom story. I thought they did a decent job with the restrictions of not being able to use Spider-Man in Venom's origin or prime motivation. I was entertained, and sometimes that's enough. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, yeah... Yeah, I find it very interesting. See, the thing is, I loved Justin Hammer in Iron Man 2. But Me too. I have to, I have to openly admit, he's not the character that that McLeany wrote at all. He's not even close to it. Not at all. Uh, not at all. Yeah. I, I you know, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, probably would have preferred if they gave it a different gave him a different name, had that character, and then maybe had a Justin Hammer who was going to be closer in character to what we saw in the comic books, because I think they are two very, very distinct characters and, and don't necessarily, you know, you, you, you could have easily had them both exist. Uh, I think what they might've been better served with is to have, um, what's his name? Sam Rockwell be Justin Hammer jr. You know, or, or like, you know, the son of Justin Hammer type of thing. And, keep the the comic book accurate or more comic book accurate justin hammer in reserve for later on like like have 
the Sam Rockwell character do what he does in, in Iron Man 2 and then he goes to prison at the end or whatever and then that gives motivation for the you know the the senior Justin Hammer to then you know really try to put the screws to Tony Stark that that might have been a better way to go because you know, I liked that character in the comics I'm familiar with that character um and yeah he's not anything like you know what we got in the movie but that said I loved Sam Rockwell in Iron Man 2 he's one of the reasons I love that movie so but the thing I actually found even more interesting than that was that, you know, he, he seems very, uh, you know, very much like, eh, whatever, you know, as far as the Venom thing, uh, you know, I, you know, I have no, uh, you know, I, I'm not all that vested in, in Venom anymore or whatever, but as someone that, that was a fan when that character first came along and everything, now, I haven't seen the movie. I've heard, you know, differing things. I've heard it's really good. I've heard it was, eh, I've heard, you know, all kinds of things. But to me, the biggest reason I haven't pulled the trigger on, on spending the two hours to watch it is that if he's not in any way tied to Spider-Man, I'm just like, huh? How do you get that character without Spider-Man? It, it's like, I don't know. It's just goofy to me. So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of surprised that he he has the opinion he has like well you know they did all right for for you know doing it without spider-man so and i i really would have expected him as the character's creator to be like well that sucked you know <laughs> but he's he's not you know so that's interesting yeah, to me maybe he's just being magnanimous could be could very well be yeah i, I would have just going back to it i would have liked to have seen a uh, an elder justin hammer uh, you know, he says he's, he's based on Peter Cushing, so someone along those lines playing Justin Hammer. And then you could have had the, you know, Sam Rockwell character kind of be his his emissary, sort of. Uh, he didn't even right. have to be Justin Hammer Jr., but, he, you know, whatever you wanted to make him. I would have liked to have seen both characters exist because, again, they're very distinct. So there's no reason you had to uh, to, to just have him and just say he's Justin Hammer. Uh, as far as the Venom movie, I also haven't seen it yet. I've heard that it's not bad, that it's an enjoyable, you know, watch. Uh, so I do plan on watching it at some point. I just have never gotten around to it, and I assume I will at some point when I'm sitting around. <laughs> uh, next question I asked, do you follow your characters after you stop working on them? If yes, are there any instances where you think that they were handled particularly well or poorly? Never. And that's not an ego spawn. Uh oh, is that a word? Is that word trademarked? Reaction. Uh, but a possibly selfish decision I made to keep my blood pressure down. <laughs> Whenever someone starts writing any character that I've become close to, whether by creating it or any other reason, uh, they can't help but write it in their own viewpoint and style. And that's both natural and inevitable. But even if the writing is brilliant, and sometimes it is, it's never what I would have done, and I can't help thinking, no, that's not what he, she would do. I don't complain about this because, uh, at least so far, my leaving a character has always been my choice. It's on me. But avoiding undue frustration is a good thing, and so that's become my policy. Good on him. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> that's like my policy with, uh, with a lot of the DC stuff that's coming out these days. It's like, you know what? I have a blood pressure to watch, so I'm not even gonna not even gonna dive into that. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't get as upset as you do by it. But, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I, uh, I just can't be bothered when they're doing stuff that I don't like. <laughs> Like it doesn't, you know, I, I don't, I don't get as irritated by it. I get more irritated when they do something stupid in the movies, just because I feel like you know, comics come out every month. They could always fix something that they screw up there, uh, right. even though, even though for years and years they haven't bothered for the most part. But the movies, you know, it, it's almost like uh, I was talking about it with with one of the Star Trek things that uh, you know when they make a mistake. Instead of saying, oh, we made a mistake and let's fix it in the next incarnation, uh, they say, oh, people must not like this anymore. Let's just cancel it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, right. no, just do it right. Yep. So that's the one that gets my blood pressure more up for whatever, <laughs> for whatever it's worth. So the last question I presented was, what do you think about characters that are introduced but then basically changed, such as Lobo, who was initially more of a comedic character, Nightwing being an offshoot of the Dick Grayson Robin character, or multiple new Robins or Superboys. I can't really address this question because I've only written one Lobo story, which I tailored to the character's established persona at the time, and I've never followed or written Nightwing, Robin, or the new versions I assume the powers that be had reasons for doing such. Whether or not these reasons were an improvement is decided by the reader's decision to buy them or not, which I feel is a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> yeah, I think he was, again, trying to be diplomatic and didn't really want to answer the question that I asked. Because uh, I wasn't asking him if he wrote those characters. I was asking him for his take on the industry a little bit and, and when they change characters like that. Because it's one of the things that we've discussed so much when we talk about the creation of a character, you know, at what point is Nightwing the creation of George Perez and Marv Wolfman as opposed to, uh, you know, Robin and Dick Grayson that were created, you know, many, many years earlier. Uh, right. So, so it's, you know, it, it's something where the lines get very, very blurred in my, in my mind. Uh, I think the creators have a tendency and I'm not putting this on him, uh, I think in general, to to draw a very strong line so that, you know, yes, Robin was created by the original creators. Uh, you know, Iron Man was created by the original creators. You know, but Rhodey is, you know, created by, by Michelini or uh, Nightwing is created by Perez and Wolfman or, you know, whatever the case may be. When, when they have these legacy characters, I think that at least the industry is is putting a strong demarcation at the new character and i i think that line tends to be a lot more blurry but i guess for rights issues they had to be a little bit more hard and fast on their rules right so well that's that's true too that that raises an interesting point that i hadn't really thought of till now is that you know venom uh, you know as a character, he he has roots beyond just what he you know how he came to be. I mean, so do you do you go all the way back? You know, if you're if you're crediting his creation or whatever, do you go all the way back to uh, 
you know, the, the black costume, when the black costume came along, you know, whoever's idea that was or whoever's idea it was at first that, you know, it, it was alive or that it could morph or whatever, or whoever's idea it was that it was alive, you know, and all those, you know, so that's where you get into the sticky situation with pretty much any comic book character that has any sort of longevity to it is that, you know, you've got multiple creators over the years, you know, be they writers or artists or whatever that, that contribute to the legend of a character. And so it does get tricky when you're trying to nail down, you know, the, the created by thing, because, you know, you look just as an instance, you know, you look at Superman, you know, and you look at Superman, say like when I would have discovered him as a kid in the, in the early seventies, well, by the time I discovered him as a kid, he was a, a pretty different character than he was when he was dreamed up by Siegel and Schuster, mm-hmm. you know, and to where he had all kinds of traits and abilities and backstory and, and tropes that they could never have dreamed or foreseen when, when they created the character yet they're still considered that character's creators. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, they had nothing to do with things like the Phantom Zone or the Fortress of Solitude or Supergirl or, you know what I mean? All these other things that became part of the, the legend of that character. So, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line? And I guess that's why I, I do like for the most part, the way Marvel has been handling their live action productions, you know, especially their movies where at the end, you know, you get the creator acknowledgement, but then you also get, you know, thanks to the contributions of these people, you know, and, and they'll generally list, you know, a good dozen names or so of people that, did the very thing I'm talking about, you know, that contributed to the legend of the characters or, or, you know, the world building that is being mined, you know, for a a particular film or, or project or whatever. And I like that. Um, Yeah. I, I like giving credit where credit is due. Uh, but I think again, I think the line gets so blurry, and I think it you, does. Know, you have people who see. I, I don't feel you know, despite the controversy that started the initial Facebook post, I don't feel he ever went over the line trying to get credit he didn't deserve. Oh, you know, absolutely. And, and apparently, yeah, no. Eric Larson would disagree with me on that. Uh, before no. Charles Brown, friends would agree. Uh, so, uh, but I, but I do think there's always a, a, an opening for people to you know, to, to try and get more credit. I think, you know, there's always, there's always room for abuse of a system whenever you put a system in place. So, right. uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that line will ever get less blurry than it is now. I, I see. I think it's very telling that somebody like Ron friends would agree with him. Whereas Ron friends has possibly a, a potential stake in that character too. I mean, he was the first one to draw the black-suited Spider-Man. So is he 
you know, part of the of the whole thing of the creation process of what eventually became Venom. I, I think an argument could be made for yes, but he's not trying to horn in on that. Unlike somebody like Larson, who contributed something later after the character was already fully formed that, you know, that did become part of the character's makeup and in, in the way he's portrayed now. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's it's fun to look at these sorts of things. I'm I'm never sure, you know, we really draw any solid conclusions. I think the whole thing's really a slippery slope, though, and I think that the thing that's made it, you know, kind of exacerbated it in recent years is the fact that, you know, we we've seen so many characters and properties and concepts and everything that you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't have imagined would ever be a movie, let alone be common household words now. I mean, there are housewives in the American Midwest who know who Groot is, you know? That's mind-blowing to me. My wife loves Groot. That's (laughs) mind-blowing to me. Yeah, And, and so now, you know... When these things happen, you know that there's got to be a, a, a decent percentage of creators out there who would like a little piece of that pie. You know, if, if they created these characters or they had a hand in forming the, the legend and the mythos of, you know, these characters or this universe, you know, they they like a little piece of that pie and. I think that's an interesting discussion that, you know, that needs to be had at some point is, you know, what what are they do? You know, what what are they entitled to, you know, when when their work is now being turned into, you know, multi-million dollar franchises? I mean, the the, Mar- the MCU as a whole is, you know, it's it's got to be worth billions of dollars at this point, you know, with with the box office returns that some of these movies have pulled down. Mm-hmm. So you know, you've got these characters and, and these concepts being mined for massive monetary returns at the same point that some of these people that, that actually, you know, created these characters or created these concepts and situations and everything that are being mined are, you know, some in some cases dying, literally dying paupers. And that's, you know, that's sad. You know, it, it makes you wonder, you know, what, what if any obligation do the the studios have to these characters whose concepts they're they're utilizing? I think any any obligation they have is more along the moral lines than the uh, legal, because I think oh, to, to, legally yeah. they, they don't have a leg to stand on, honestly. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's I, I'm not going to defend Eric Larson because I feel like his response was kind of dicky, to be fair. Um, so, but I'll, I'll point out that I think he, you know, his, his comments were not trying or not arguing to take credit himself. He was arguing to give credit to McFarlane. Now, I don't doubt for a second that that's somehow rooted in something else that he's trying to make sure he can, you know, build on those arguments for himself somehow. But whatever the case may be, in, in the 
postings that I saw, it was not where he was saying, well, I did this or I did that. You know, again, I, oh, I don't, okay. I, 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 I'm not willing to give him uh, a, a complete free pass on it because I think he handled it really, really poorly. Uh, and, and I don't doubt for a second he may have had some sort of motivation that we're not aware of. But at least in what we read, he didn't, uh, he didn't argue, you know, that he was the creator in any way. That that whole argument, you know, when it comes to the artist side of these creation things, that one's always a tough one for me because I, I kind of feel like I see both sides. Um, but I still tend to, uh, you know, again, go with kind of the, the Stan Lee thought of it's the guy who came up with the idea is the creator, you know. So to me, it's like unless the the writer and the artist sat down together at the same board and hashed this thing out together, you know, in the same room, in the same process and came up with a finished thing, unless that was the process, it's the guy who came up with the idea. That's that's just I don't know. To me, that's the way I've, I've always looked at it. And I get annoyed with there's this thing that goes around Facebook on a pretty regular basis of. You know, it's it's this one page cartoon of it says something like, you know, what what if Batman debuted as as Bob Kane originally thought him up or something to that uh, that effect. And it, it's the it's the Batman with like bat wings and a red outfit and a domino mask and he's got blonde hair and he basically doesn't look anything like Batman. And that really annoys me because okay, you know, yes, other people helped contribute to that character and and the way he ultimately looked and and the way he, you know, he ultimately was as he first debuted. But that that doesn't take away the fact that, you know, somebody dreamed that character up. So if he had debuted that way, then we probably wouldn't be talking about him now, 80 years later. I'll give you that, but that doesn't take away from the fact that still, you know, this guy thought the concept up, the concept may have changed, you know, over time. And and by the time it actually saw print, but it's still, there was, you know, somebody had to have that germ of the initial idea. That to me is the creator. And I don't know. know. We're never going to know, at what point it became a collaboration, you know, because right. we're never going to get we're never going to get a true story of exactly how this developed. But you know, if you know, you came to me and said, "Hey, Paul, I have an idea. Let's do a podcast about comics." And then the two of us sat down and we, you know, said, "Oh, well, what if we do this? What if we do that?" And we came up with Back to the Bins, which we did not. I came in into an established show. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to steal any credit here. <laughs> but but just you know I'm just trying to create a hypothetical. Uh, right. At that point, at what point does it become a collaboration? At what point was it? Well, Scott came to me and said he wanted to make a uh, a podcast about comics. You know what I mean? It's it's right. It's it's uh, not a fine line. It's 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 not a a, a clear distinction. Uh, you know, if if I contribute very little to it and. You know, then I say, well, we, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we did it together. Then you're going to say, well, you know, you didn't really contribute anything. <laughs> On the other hand, if I, uh, 
you know, if I give, if I, you know, it was an equal input to come up with how we were going to do it after you came up with the initial idea, then it is a co-creation. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. So, it's, so this you know, again, we're, we're never going to know. We're never going to know at what point uh, Bill Finger stepped in, and at what point, you know, what what things were his ideas, what things were Kane's ideas. We don't know. Uh, you know, they're both right. gone. And even when Kane was here, he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't going to give any credit. So, uh, and and I'm not trying to say that was wrong. I'm trying to say I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, those types of situations, I think are definitely exacerbated by the fact that now you're talking about characters and properties that are worth you know tons of money so when that excuse me when that's thrown into the mix then all of a sudden it becomes a whole different you know argument because there's a whole different motivation behind why you know people are trying to prove a point one way or the other because you know there's money I know this. This whole th- this has all been very interesting to me, though, because this uh, this thing with uh, Michelini and Venom kind of kind of just came out of nowhere and kind of blindsided me. I didn't really follow it until I think it was you that tagged me in, in one of the posts or something as, as saying, "Hey, this is something we've been talking about." Mm-hmm. Up until that point, I don't really think I was all that aware of it because to me it was like, who doesn't know that? That make you know Michelini created Venom. I just to me that wasn't accepted. I thought everybody knew that kind I of thing. I think there's so, a ton of people who don't know. Right, <laughs> but it was I don't know. It was just really surprising to me that you know that it that it was actually a thing, and I guess it continues to be a thing. And that I don't know. It was surprising, but it's also it was really sad because I'm like, really, wow. I mean, this is this is what we this is what we're fighting about. Okay. I don't know. It's just to me, as somebody who was there as the stuff was coming out, I just thought that was, you know, that was the accepted, you know. So it was kind of surprising to find that there was this whole thing, you know, brewing behind the scenes or whatever. So, but I've enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I hope people have enjoyed listening to it. And I hope, uh, I hope David listens to this and likes what he hears. Uh, although I. Don't think we gilded the lily at all. I don't think we, you know, I think we were fair, uh, but we pointed out what we think was good, what was bad, whatever. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it was sucking up so much. Uh, but I do hope he likes it. And if he does, please, me too. let us know what you think. Me if you too. don't like it, let me know what you think there, too, because certainly <laughs> it was never meant to offend. But that said, I guess we'll be back with another show talking about something else next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week.